This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Andrea Dukakis. Overdoses from painkillers like opioids are at an all-time high, and a bad decision like prescribing oxycodone to an addict could result in death. Doctors or nurses might even lose their licenses. Kay, who didn't want her real name to use, knows about that firsthand. She's a physician's assistant in Denver who found herself in trouble in 2014 for prescribing opioids to a patient. She asked us not to use her real name for privacy reasons, and she joins us now to share her story. Kay, welcome. Thank you. You had a complaint filed against you. What happened? Um, I actually had two complaints filed against me at about the same time. One was from a patient who um, felt that he he should get more narcotics because he had uh, was in pain and had used more and uh, felt like that he needed some more. Um, the second one was a complaint that was actually filed by um, Dora, who is the medical board here, um, as a result of a patient in a clinic that I had worked at that unfortunately had died from an overdose, and so all of the practitioners that, you know, had been in that clinic were evaluated and random uh, charts were picked up and and evaluated. And there was a concern that they had about one of my prescribing decisions. What were your thoughts when you were told about these complaints? Oh, it's that horrible feeling, you know, the pit in your stomach of like, oh, no, I'm in trouble. Um, You're afraid because it's my license that's at stake. And then, of course, you're uh, you question yourself. You know, you certainly don't want to harm a patient, so you're wondering if you're, uh, you know, if you're practicing, if your practicing practices are good or not. And then you, you know, you feel. I felt a lot of shame, like, mm-hmm. oh my goodness, this is, uh, you know, maybe I really am in the wrong field. You just have all sorts of, you know, horrible thoughts go through your head. Had you ever had a complaint filed against you before this? No, this was the first time. And, and generally, were you aware of patients who might have been trying to pressure you or others to prescribe certain drugs to them? Oh, absolutely. That is something that's um, fairly common with patients that are on pain medications. And it's not, that, um, it's not that they're drug addicts. It's that they're in pain. And they're looking for relief. They're trying to function, they're trying to take care of their families. They're trying to work. They're trying to be comfortable. And they, you know, they're looking for relief. Um, but there is a lot of pressure. It's a daily, um, it's a daily situation that those of us that prescribe narcotics face. And you mentioned DORA, Department of Regulatory Agencies. Um, the licensing, sorry, the licensing board suggested you take a course that was originally designed at Vanderbilt University. It's called Prescribing Controlled Drugs: Critical Issues and Common Pitfalls. And we'll hear what you learned in a minute. But let's bring in Dr. Elizabeth Grace. Uh, she's the medical director of the Center for Personalized Education for Physicians, and uh, that group runs the course. Dr. Grace, who is this designed for? The course is primarily designed for healthcare providers who prescribe opioids, who have gotten in some sort of trouble, if you will, um, as Kay mentioned. Um, so individuals who have been accused of misprescribing, perhaps, but it is also appropriate for Uh, prescribers who aren't in any sort of trouble but who struggle with this issue and 
for whom it, it causes a lot of challenges. It's a really difficult patient population. And how common are these kinds of complaints against doctors and other prescribers? I don't know that we have overall numbers of physicians or other prescribers who are sanctioned for that kind of difficulty, but we do know that misuse of prescription drugs in Colorado and in the United States is at epidemic proportions. And Kay is an example of someone who got into trouble for prescribing. How much is this the fault of of the medical provider? Well, that's the... Who bears responsibility? <laughs> that is the, the big question, isn't it? The Certainly, patients who are drug-seeking are um, very skilled at what they do, but the bottom line is that the prescriber is at the spigot of the water fountain, mm-hmm. and they're they're in control of those prescriptions. Anybody could be swindled or duped at some point, but a higher awareness will probably keep things under better wraps. We'll be back in a few minutes to continue our conversation with Kay, who didn't want her real name used uh, for privacy reason. She's a physician's assistant in Denver. Also with us, Dr. Elizabeth Grace. She's the medical director of the Center for Personalized Education for Physicians. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Andrea Dukakis. We're talking about the role of medical care providers when it comes to prescribing painkillers. A bad decision to prescribe certain drugs to an addict could result in death. And doctors and nurses risk losing their licenses to practice. We've been speaking with Kay, who didn't want her real name used for privacy reasons. She's a physician's assistant in Denver who had a case filed against her in 2014 for prescribing opioids to a patient. Also with us is Dr. Elizabeth Grace, who's the medical director of the Center for Personalized Education for Physicians. The center offers a three-day course for medical providers to help them decide when and when not to prescribe. Kay took the course in December. Dr. Grace, the course Kay took was the first course you've held in Denver, um, but you're planning another one in June. Give me an example of how a medical care provider would be pressured to prescribe. What might a patient say? As Kay mentioned, the patients are typically complaining of pain. Individuals go into the healthcare professions because they want to help patients. And to to try to convince a patient what they believe they need and what you believe they need are are different can be really challenging. And is this sort of pressure getting more common because of the rise in addiction to prescription painkillers? I think that there are more patients that are on chronic opioids or narcotics, and there are more prescriptions written than, say, 10 years ago by far. Mm-hmm. And how do you teach doctors to avoid the pitfalls of prescribing drugs that are very addictive? 
The first thing that we try to do is to help them understand what appropriate prescribing practices are and what risky prescribing practices are. The other half of this is being able to recognize substance abuse in a patient and also signs of diversion, which means that the patient's getting the prescription but doing something else with it, like selling it. Then the last component of the course is very important. It involves self-reflection about personal reasons why this might be so challenging for you, why it's so hard to say no to patients. Mm -hmm. Some people just might have a hard time saying no. Definitely, because it's it's against their nature to to try to fix things, to try to to help the patient, and this is what the patient typically believes they need. Kate, what do you think was the most helpful thing you got out of the course? Well, there were there were many helpful things. It's a phenomenal course. I think I felt I felt normal, and one of the I think the most important thing that the course helped me is that. Um, to trust my decision-making process. And so, and in this particular case is that, okay, you, you know, I made the decisions that I made for the reasons that I made them, and the consequences happened to be uh, negative for me, but I still felt good about the decisions that I made. Um, my confidence in my decision-making process overall has just increased substantially, and I feel like that I'm making decisions now for treating patients out of integrity rather than fear. I mean, there is definitely a fear component because... Um, there's a lot of pressure on providers to not do the right, you know, to not do the wrong thing. But I want to, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to be that person that's just afraid rather than, you know, being able to see my patients as people and do the best thing for them. And Dr. Grace, isn't this the sort of thing that's taught in medical schools and other schools that train medical providers? Most medical schools will teach about appropriate prescribing and substance abuse today, but that may not have been true for many of the healthcare providers who are out there in practice. In addition, the responsibility that you have once you are actually out in practice is so much more significant than when you're in training that it's really a different animal, I think. Kay, did you share with your other classmates the sense of shame you felt when you heard about the complaint? Yeah, absolutely. That was that was really the first thing that uh, the facilitators did for us, and it was very helpful for me because I, you know, my feelings were just like everyone else's feelings, and so we felt, you know, normalized <laughs> that this was a normal response, and that uh, there was not, you know, something really wrong with us. And where's your case now? Um, the first case has been dismissed because there was, they didn't find any validity to it. The second case is is pending. It's been pending for like almost a year. And I, I'm sort of like letting sleeping dog lie, if you will. Kay, Dr. Grace, thanks for being with us. Thank you for thank having you for, us. Yes, thank you very much. Kay, who didn't want her real name used for privacy reasons, is a physician's assistant in Denver. Dr. Elizabeth Grace is medical director of the Center for Personalized Education for Physicians. The three-day course will be taught again in June. This is CPR's Colorado Matters. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Andrea Dukakis. 
One in five new mothers deals with some sort of postpartum depression. An even smaller number will face postpartum obsessive-compulsive disorder, something Denver composer Loretta Notoreski knows all about. She recently turned to her music to share her experience. CPR's Brad Turner has the story. Loretta Notoreski remembers singing this folk tune just minutes after she gave birth to her daughter. It goes... Oh, how lovely is the evening, is the evening when the bells are sweetly ringing, sweetly Notoreski felt unforgettable joy that January day three years ago when she and her husband held their newborn baby Ruby in a Denver hospital. One of the beautiful things about her birth was that it was late afternoon and the sun was coming in through the windows. Um, and I just, it just seemed like this perfect moment for someone to come into the world. That moment of euphoria after Ruby arrived didn't last long. That night in the hospital, Notoreski sat in a rocking chair while her newborn daughter slept. She says a scary thought popped into her head. What I imagined was that I would throw her down the spiral staircase in our house, which is just, you know, like, how could you think that, right? Notoreski had just experienced what doctors call an intrusive thought. Everyone has them once in a while. This thought, and those that followed, marked the start of something more frightening for Notoreski, postpartum obsessive-compulsive disorder. And it intensified a few days later when Notoreski and her husband brought Ruby home from the hospital. Everyday objects, like a knife on a countertop, suddenly seemed threatening. It's like this, a what-if thought that becomes overwhelming. Uh, And I saw the, we have a cellar and the cellar stairs were open so we could get down to the laundry. And I thought, what if she fell down the stairs? And I saw there was a rope that was in the house and I looked at it and I thought, what if she were strangled in the rope? Postpartum mental illness often feels like a crisis. That's according to Kim Spring Thompson. She's a clinical psychologist with Children's Hospital Colorado. Thompson works with a lot of new mothers, like Notoreski, who need treatment and therapy. Thompson explains that a new mom who has intrusive thoughts or feels depressed might be scared to ask for help. She says other mothers fear they'll develop a severe postpartum mental illness, like Andrea Yates. She was a Houston woman who suffered from postpartum psychosis and murdered her five children. When these women start to experience symptoms, if that's their only context for what postpartum mood disorders looks like, it's very scary to think that they might be ending up in that same position. Thompson says the key is to get help fast. Notoreski told a nurse in the hospital after her first intrusive thought and quickly got counseling and therapy. Notoreski says all through this, she remained a loving and caring mother. I had not lost touch with reality. I wasn't crazy. You know, I wasn't psychotic. But I, I was afraid. She found herself repeating phrases in her head to take her mind off the negative ones. She thought of harmless objects, like a soft infant hairbrush, a toy duck, and the name Babyface. And then Babyface was one of the early nicknames that I gave Ruby. She also thought of musical patterns. She'd bounce chords around in her head when her anxiety kept her up at night. It could resolve that way, or it could resolve like this. I couldn't sleep. And so it was like the musical equivalent of counting sheep. And if I did that, then I could relax enough to fall asleep. A contemporary classical group Notoreski works with, Playground Ensemble, asked her to write a string quartet a few months ago. She decided to write about her struggles as a new mother. And some of those patterns she played with in her head found their way into her music. 
It took about a year of treatment and therapy for the intrusive thoughts and the anxiety that came with them to feel manageable. Now she says she's recovered. She works and composes and takes care of Ruby. How you doing? Notoreski picks up Ruby from preschool on a recent afternoon, and three-year-old Ruby jumps into her mom's arms. They get home and sit down at the piano. The farmer is the child. The farmer doesn't eat the child. <laughs> Meanwhile, Notoreski has finished her piece about her struggle with postpartum OCD. She calls it string quartet OCD. The final movement is called second delivery. Notoreski says after giving birth to her daughter, the year that followed felt like a longer, tougher kind of birth. And the melody she sang on the night her daughter was born turns up in this final movement. It's a kind of reclaiming of that tune because I associate it with the very early period of my daughter's life, which was so hard. Um, you know, at the same time as I was very in love with her, it was very difficult emotionally. One day, Ruby, when she's older, will hear the string quartet. She'll hear the sounds of the darker moments that came with being a new mother, but she'll also hear the moments of joy her mother experienced. They're both part of understanding what Notoreski went through. I'm Brad Turner, Colorado Public Radio News. Coming up, two doctors talk about the signs of postpartum OCD and how it might affect children. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with CPR's Colorado Matters. I'm Andrea Dukakis. A few minutes ago, we heard the story of Denver composer Loretta Notoreski, who struggled with postpartum obsessive-compulsive disorder. She used her musical talents to create a piece she hopes will help others understand the experience. It'll be performed tomorrow night at Regis University in Denver. We're now joined by two doctors from Children's Hospital Colorado to hear more about mothers who deal with postpartum mental illness. Dr. Jennifer Paul and Dr. Celeste St. John Larkin direct the hospital's Healthy Expectations Perinatal Mental Health Program. Dr. Paul, Dr. St. John Larkin, welcome. Thank you so much. Thank you. Dr. Paul, we heard in the story that Loretta Notoreski got help quickly when she started to notice symptoms of postpartum OCD. What symptoms or feelings are associated with it? So a lot of the feelings are related to um, feelings of sadness, as you would expect, um, when we're talking about postpartum depression generally, but also sometimes feelings of anxiety, worry, those sorts of things, um, troubles with sleeping, eating. Um, for her, sometimes worries about your baby right. um, and safety, things like that. Do you know what causes postpartum OCD? So there's a number of things that, that come together when we're thinking about mood or anxiety disorders in the postpartum period. So um, some of it is brain chemistry. Some of it is uh, family history or individual mm -hmm. history. So if depression or OCD runs in your family, if you've had a history of OCD yourself, sometimes it's the impact of, especially in that postpartum period, um, lack of sleep, trying to care for a new baby, um, adjustments um, to a new lifestyle in a lot 
lot of ways, a new identity, and um, also that hormonal shift um, that we're thinking about and how that relates to the brain chemistry um, after delivery. Dr. Um, St. John Larkin, even though Nodoreski got help quickly, it took about a year for her condition to subside after treatment and therapy. Is that normal? Yes, that's pretty typical. We hope that women with treatment will start to feel better within a few weeks to a few months, but the full course of recovery, even with therapy and medications, can take about a year. And Dr. Paul, postpartum mental illness made headlines recently. In January, a federal panel recommended all pregnant women and all new mothers be screened for postpartum depression. How significant was the step? I think it's a very significant step. I think we've been working really hard in Colorado uh, in recent years to encourage screening early and often. Um, but I think having this recommendation um, nationwide will be quite helpful. And, and Dr. St. John Larkin, what kinds of questions would a woman answer in a screening for postpartum mental illness? So there are questions about how are you sleeping? Are you enjoying things as much as you normally would? Questions about tearfulness, questions about um, anxiety symptoms and worries, feeling overwhelmed. Um, And then there are important questions about uh, safety, so questions about having thoughts about hurting yourself or hurting others. And Dr. Paul, how successful is Colorado at connecting women who suffer from postpartum depression with treatment? We're getting there. I, I think, again, we've, we've been focusing a lot of time and effort on it, um, and it's been a process. I think we have a long way to go. Uh, I think the services are starting to develop. But I think particularly when you're asking women to advocate for themselves when they are struggling with depression or anxiety, um, that's a pretty tall order. And so we need to make sure we're really giving that warm handoff. We're supporting women in getting connected. So if they come to you and you're not the one who's going to be able to provide that support, ensuring that you support them in getting to the person who will be able to. Dr. St. John Larkin, um, let's talk about uh, postpartum mental illness and children. How much does it affect uh, children? So we, we have a lot of evidence that depression and anxiety during pregnancy and in the postpartum period can directly affect children in their development. A lot of moms do a really good job of putting on um, a happy face and interacting well with their babies, but we know um, long-term if it's not treated that kids can have delayed language development, delayed social-emotional development, um, and other developmental delays, but it's definitely treatable, and so we want to make that message and not scare people if they've experienced this, that that's automatically something's wrong with their child. Um, because a lot of women do a really good job of hiding this and and doing a great job with their babies. And Dr. Paul, is this another thing for women to feel guilty about as mothers? Uh, I think that's always a concern, right? There's so many things for women to feel guilty about as mothers. And I I think that's that's part of the struggle and part of the issue, right, is that all that social pressure to be that perfect mom, to be enjoying your your time as a mom with your baby. And that's just not often the case. Um, And I think it's important to really provide moms and babies with that support because postpartum mood and anxiety is something that impacts not only the mom, but also the baby and the relationship. And they're sort of fighting against that together. And I think that's the idea. It takes a team effort and it really impacts the whole family. And so we want to provide support to the whole family. And Dr. John uh, St. John Larkin, you're on a panel at Nodoreski's concert tomorrow night. What do you hope the audience gets out of the evening? 
Um, we're hoping, well, we're very honored to be part of the panel and to be included, and I'm very proud that she was able to write this piece and talk about her experience. Um, we're hoping that people will have an increased awareness that these um, obsessive compulsive disorders, anxiety, depression, that these exist in the pregnancy and postpartum period, and that asking for help is really important and to increase awareness about resources in the community. And uh, Dr. Paul, are you going to be there as well? I will be there. Uh-huh. I won't be on the panel. We wanted to keep it to uh, a smaller number, um, and we wanted to uh, have Dr. Kim Spring-Thompson um, be able to be part of that panel. So, Do you work with um, spouses to help um, you know, their wives, husbands deal, or their wives deal with this kind of issue? We do, yeah. Uh, you know, as I said before, it's a, it's a whole um, family matter in a sense, and um, we want to make sure that the entire family is getting support and um, gain skills and um, greater understanding around how to support each other through the experience. Because I imagine a spouse doesn't necessarily understand it, but has to work with it and try to help that person. Right. And oftentimes they're saying to themselves, where did my partner go and and what has happened? Um, and that's pretty confusing oftentimes for partners. Dr. Paul, Dr. St. John Larkin, thanks for speaking with me. Thank you. Thank you. Dr. Jennifer Paul and Dr. Celeste St. John Larkin work with the Healthy Expectations Program for New Mothers at Children's Hospital Colorado. Dr. St. John Larkin is on a panel discussion about postpartum OCD Wednesday night at Regis University. The discussion will feature a musical recital by Denver composer Loretta Notoreski, who struggled with postpartum OCD. You can see a video of the group, Playground Ensemble performing some of Notoreski's piece in CPR's performance studio at cprnews.org. This is Colorado Matters from Colorado Public Radio.